0: This is Careless Do More. Welcome back to Careless Do More. My name is Michelle Parker. I'm your host and a longtime professional skier, a lover of the outdoors and this great community and everyone involved in it. I've been thoroughly enjoying the process of recording these podcasts, and I truly hope you're enjoying listening to them. I'm excited to share this conversation with you. It's one of my favorite episodes yet. My guest on the show today is Adrian Ballinger, a neighbor, close friend, a husband to Emily Harrington, a previous guest on the show, a new father to Arrow Storm Ballinger, born November 25th, which was just after we recorded this episode, a professional high altitude climber and a skier, and so much more that you'll find out about in this episode. Let's press play. I think you'll enjoy this one. This episode is brought to you by Arcteryx. I just got back from our athlete summit with the team and it was a really incredible experience getting to spend time with all the different athletes from different backgrounds and sports. Arcterix focused primarily on mental health while we were there and they gave us tools to apply to life and sport and suggested that we disconnected for the week from our phones and our computers, which felt incredibly good and cleansing. The company is such a great brand to be involved with, aside from being the most technical and well-designed product, and that is truly what I think, they care about bigger things than just that. Check out the Regear program where they take back gear that isn't being used and refurbish it with the same obsessive design that they built it to extend its active life beyond one adventure or just one user. Shout out to the Sentinel jacket, which is my personal favorite jacket and the one I'll be rocking this season. And note that they just made it in an anorak, if that's more your style. These jackets stand the test of time, as does the rest of their gear, and I'm just incredibly thankful to have Arcteryx's support on both this podcast and in my career. It is my pleasure today to get to sit down with Adrian Ballinger, who is a big mountain climber and skier, a certified mountain guide, and a professional speaker. He is the founder of Alpenglow Expeditions, which now takes 6,000-plus people a year skiing, climbing, and mountaineering, and has been professionally guiding groups on the world's tallest mountains for 25 years. He's led over 150 international climbing expeditions on six continents and made 18 successful summits of 8,000 meters, including eight summits of Mount Everest. He is known for pioneering the use of pre-acclimatization for commercial expeditions by way of using an altitude tent. And as an athlete, Adrian is the only American to have made three successful ski descents of 8,000 meter peaks, including the first ski descents of Makalu and Manaslu from their summits. He is also the fourth American to have summited both Mount Everest and K2 without the use of supplemental oxygen. Adrian is also a rock climber, loves any day out in the mountains on skis, a runner, married to Emily Harrington, a father-to-be, and has encouraged and taught me so much about bigger mountains, safety, and how to approach high-altitude peaks. I'm really excited to be here with you Adrian. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm so excited too. This is so fun. <laughs>
0: that is quite the uh intro that I just gave you. <laughs> and I went to your website to gather that information and I was blown away. It's funny because I feel like we're such close friends, but I was like, "Oh my gosh, he is so accomplished. It's well, really cool."
1: Well, thanks. I I didn't write that, but um yeah, I guess those I guess that's one way to describe me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, fair enough. There's so much more to you than that though. Um, I guess I'd like to start like in the beginning and uh, I think just describe where you were born and and where that took you.
1: Yeah, so I I was actually born in England. That's where I'm from. I lived there until I was six years old when my uh, immediate like nuclear family moved to Massachusetts and uh, we came, my dad had like a two-year contract with IBM and the whole family just kind of like Fell in love with the us which is cool And i think my parents really saw that there were just so many opportunities for all of us here and uh, a lucky twist for me was i was walking distance from this tiny little ski hill called mount wachusett 800 vertical feet of radness and they had night skiing and so i'm not someone who started skiing when i was like two years old but luckily at six or seven my family started taking me a little bit and by the time I was a teenager. I was going there pretty much every every day after finishing, uh, you know, homework or whatever it was I was meant to be doing. So, grew up in Massachusetts. Uh, that's also where I started rock climbing and was lucky enough to have sort of family friends that started taking me into the White Mountains of New Hampshire, mm. and that's where I got my first taste of what, to me, were like huge, tall, scary mountains that people died on and things like that, like they... They it seemed so rowdy at the time. And a funny thing is, actually looking back at it, they were really rowdy for like high school kids with no experience going in the winter. Like For sure. Kind of lucky we got through some of those early years in New England. And I think I actually learned so much about taking care of myself in in the backcountry and with teammates uh, in those early years when we weren't doing anything. There was no like technical ice climbing, technical rock climbing. I didn't even ski Tuckermans until I was like a senior in high school. It was just like going out and spending nights really cold.
0: Yeah. In the wintertime, like, did you have crampons and all the gear? Yeah,
1: I did get crampons early on. I mean, one of the funny things, my my parents definitely weren't outdoorsy, but I think they thought like we moved to New England and this is what you did. So we started like going camping and going hiking right. and things like that. And then through these family friends that I had, I started rock climbing a lot and skiing a lot and doing a little ice climbing. And my parents weren't really supportive of it exactly, but my mom, especially, like decided that if I was going to do these things, I was doing them, going to do them safely. Mm-hmm. And so one of my like, favorite memories from this time being a teenager, I couldn't even drive yet, but I had like started lead climbing, rock climbing, but I was leading only on what are called nuts or hexes because mm. I couldn't afford cams and my mom like found out from eastern mountain sports the local shot shop, shop that like cams would make my climbing safer and so starting like once a month a cam would show up on my bed when i came home from yes. school like on my pillow <laughs> and so i got my first rack from my mom even though i still had to tell her i was going to the library when i went climbing not that i was going climbing cuz she didn't want to worry no but way. she was actually like helping at the same time that she didn't really want to know about it
0: yeah Yeah, I remember my first time going to the White Mountains, and I really actually was like blown away by the elevation relief. Yeah. Standing at the bottom, like they are big mountains. That's right. Right? A lot of them are like 4,000 feet. Yeah, Mount Washington
1: is over 6,000 feet, the tallest peak east of the Mississippi. But since you are starting essentially at sea level, the relief is huge. Yeah, totally. And the weather is just (laughs) incredibly heinous and bad. And that's kind of like the badge of pride of growing up climbing in New England, right? It's like, it's cold and windy and wet in the winter and then in the summer there's like black flies and unbelievable humidity like it's not very good but i definitely think it teaches you to like appreciate the good days and uh learn how to take care of yourself in a a lot of different environments
0: yeah yeah and people might be wondering about your accent which i know a lot of people comment on but that's from new england
1: or yeah. from England,
0: and then to Massachusetts. Exactly.
1: Somehow I le- got left with like maybe a little bit of British in there. I don't know <laughs> how I kept it. My sister's one year older than me, completely lost hers, but yeah. I kept mine. Yeah. And then I got like Masshole mixed in, you know, yeah. like Worcester, <laughs> Massachusetts, and it's a real accent. Yeah. Um, and this is what I'm left with. <laughs> I Trying really to get like a little California in there. There you now. go.
0: <laughs> You've got it. You've got it. So wow, that's really cool that your mom wasn't necessarily super fired up on it but she wanted to do it safely so
1: yeah yeah yeah, exactly i mean i think it was cool that she supported in her own way um but they my parents for sure like were very good with teaching my sister and i to like try different things and find a passion and that's what i think is probably the greatest gift they gave me and Mm -hmm. my sister Uh, at the same time they absolutely saw a traditional path for me and so as, you know, after I went to high school in Massachusetts, I went to college in Washington, D.C., and I studied pre-med, and my family was just, like, very strict, like, you're gonna graduate, you're gonna go to med school, you're wow. gonna get a real job, you're gonna have a nice house, you're gonna live on the East Coast close to us, and uh, obviously that's not how things turned out. <laughs> yeah. And it was a struggle for a bit, like, I finished school, I got into med school, I decided to take a year off to get climbing and skiing out of my system, and I, like, Worked for this mentor guide friend Chris Warner that I had, and mixed like living in Telluride for ski season, and then the rest of the year kind of traveling all over, uh, really the world. Mm-hmm. I got to go to Asia for the first time to Nepal, and spent a lot of time in Peru and Ecuador and Bolivia, and basically that year. But at the end of it, there was just no way I was going back to medical school. Like yeah. I was just barely able to pay my bills if I ate just peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and burritos, and like. And, and I was traveling the world climbing. Um, yeah. And that, that, that's kind of a bit further down the path of how I started doing this. Like, I, I really never imagined that it could be my profession. Um, but since I could pay my bills and I was just, like, endlessly fascinated every day by, like, the problem-solving challenges that came with this life, mm-hmm. it, it just completely, like, fed me. And so I kept going.
0: Yeah, you said that you took a couple years off to get it out of your system, but I feel like for so many of us, that's not something that you can get out of your system. Like it is so a part of who you are on a day-to-day basis.
1: One hundred percent. And yeah. I certainly didn't know that then, but it is. It's like instead of getting out of the system, it just kind of built the system, it <laughs> yeah, became <whoops>. the system.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Um
1: and it, yeah, I mean the, the sport, climbing, skiing, and guiding, like it turned out that like the educational side or the like helping others to achieve their goals became a big piece for me. I think I've been really lucky in my career to have this kind of balance between going after my own pursuits as kind of like an athlete and then as a mountain guide, being able to like fully be focused on other people's experiences in the mountains and both are very important to me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I've always said that I think one of the most beautiful characteristics that a person can have is their ability to share their passion with others. Right. And when you, when it happens to you and you receive that, which you've done for me, it's like so enlightening and this really empowering feeling of someone who truly cares about your experience.
1: 100%. And I like benefited, I, I was gifted that by so many people along my path, right? Like I had these like really intensely important series of mentors and a lot of people ask me how you get into guiding or how you become an athlete or whatever it is. And it's like, you know it's really hard to say how because I'm like, how lucky did I get that I was in the right place at the right time with the right set of skills or energy or whatever it was to have these mentors in my life? And right. without mentorship, I think it's really hard to find a way into this lifestyle.
0: Totally. And what are your suggestions for people that are looking for that mentorship? Because I get that question a lot.
1: Yeah, I, and I do too. I mean, I think if you... I think the biggest thing is finding that thing you're passionate about, right, and putting the energy in because what that means is you're in the places where those like old guys and girls are who maybe are already in their careers to give that back and to share that, um, and passion just stands out, right? Like mm-hmm. we were talking before we went on about the the new high altitude fitness gym in Chucky and. It's a climbing gym that's opened in our town or in our community, and we didn't really have one or that central meeting place in in North Lake Tahoe for a long time. I think for climbers, mm-hmm. and the most beyond just being able to get stronger, because I get to be inside a really world class gym now. The biggest thing that gym has been like feeding me with is seeing these kids with so much. Passion, mm-hmm. like, And they're juggling just as many things as we are with school and family and friends and all this. But they're like in the gym like six days a week because when you're 14, you don't need to rest, right? Like I can't climb six days a week, but they can. And uh, the ones with passion, it really stands out. And I think, it, you know, opportunities kind of like people feel like they get lucky. Opportunities present themselves. But I think it has a lot to do with putting the time in and having a clear passion.
0: Yeah, I've seen this happen with you and Emily in the gym with, uh, I think his name is Hazen, right? Yeah, Hazen's a great example. And one time I was climbing with him and he just hung out for like two hours. And like, I'm not as strong of a climber as he is for sure. So I was like getting beta from him. (laughs) Yeah, and like, and then like it unraveled how like big of a fan he is of you and Emily, but yeah. just to spend that time around you is like very impactful for yeah. a young kid. Like that's super well, cool. I'd
1: like to believe so and vice versa. Like it gave me a whole new level of stoke. Like he started sending me like reels of like yes. kilterboard problems that I should do on Instagram. And I'm like, this is so rad. Like no one else is sending me V4s on the kilter board that I should try. Oh, and so awesome. it is, it's a two way street, right? And yep. then you see this kid that like a year and a half ago didn't climb had the opportunity through COVID to like get his first set up in a gym membership. And then this weekend we saw him out, you know, climbing with Jimmy Webb, one of the best boulders in the country or in the world. Wow. Um, you know, and he's this 14 year old kid that, you know, is, is having those opportunities, but he's really creating them for himself.
0: Mm-hmm, totally. And then you mentioned earlier that like some of these guides or individuals are at a place in their career where they're ready to be mentors. And it seems like for you, your career has been so long, but it seems like it started out. No, I (laughs) did. I always do that by accident. That's not what I was intending. Your career is so long. (laughs) Well, you've been into mountain climbing and doing these things for so long that it, like, it would appear for me that you were kind of mentoring, like, quite young in that process. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it is true. So you know, so I had these opportunities very young. So 17 years old, I got to go to my first 6,000 meter peaks, 20,000 foot peaks in Ecuador. So kind of the same trip you did, I did when I was 17. And like, thanks to this mentor, Chris Warner, who was both a guide and uh, kind of like professional doing big expeditions, he really took me under his wing. And so by the time I was 21, 22, right after college, I was guiding big 6,000 meter trips, you know, where all the clients were 20 or 25 years older than wow. me. So yeah. I had a lot of these early opportunities. And um, and so once I started my own company in 2004, Alpenglow Expeditions, it was immediately like a goal, not only to be like uh, guiding my own clients, but also to be bringing other guides in. Um, that could work with me and hopefully grow with me and things like that uh, and get opportunities, have opportunities.
0: So you're guiding at 21 years old. Was that your way of just being in the mountains more? Or was that like this desire to be a professional athlete and that was a way that you could learn more? What was your intention with guiding so young?
1: Yeah, it's such a great question. I do think my like athlete career has maybe been the opposite of a a lot of others in the sport um, because You know, at age 17, I got my like first free pairs of shoes and climbing boots from La Sportiva through this like fantastic East Coast rep named Bill Pelkey who really helped me early on. Mm -hmm. So I was getting free gear very early in my career, but I really wasn't getting any money. And Mm -hmm. I think that was partly where the industry was in the 90s. There were very few people making money as climbers. Um, and I was a climb even though I was a passionate skier, I was never really good enough to break through as a skier. I, it, it was a, as a climber that I started to break through a little bit first, mm-hmm. even though skiing was like my truest passion from my youngest days. Like I, I was never a racer. I tried to be a bump skier and back then it was like freestyle, right? Like bumps, yeah. ballet and aerials. And I was like a decent bump skier and absolutely Terrible in the air, like aerials, just didn't work for me. But you tried. I tried. I tried all of it. I wish um, I would pay money to see that. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Those videos must be out there somewhere. Um, But so, yeah, so um, getting free gear, but not able to make a living at all. And then having these opportunities right when I graduated to have seen international kind of big mountain expeditions and found that I really loved that. That Mm -hmm. high altitude just clicked with me, but high altitude is also really expensive. And so, yeah, initially I fell into guiding because it was the way to feed my passion for climbing and to getting to bigger mountains. So I started spending a lot of time in South America and Asia, and I would often run, like, I'd go to Ecuador and do three back-to-back guiding trips and then take a month off and stay and be fully acclimatized and go and try to climb hard stuff. And then I'd go to Peru and do the same thing, and then I'd go to Nepal and do the same thing. Um, And that's how really my world was through my 20s. I was building experience as a guide, becoming eventually a fully certified IFMGA mountain guide, starting my own business um, and still getting free jackets and free shoes. (laughs) But that's really about it. And it wasn't until Mount Everest was really where I broke through in kind of 2007, 2008, 2009, where maybe I stood out in some ways to where I started making money as a climber Mm -hmm. um, and then as a climber and skier but it wasn't until my 30s right
0: right that's so interesting and was that your first was that your when you went there to climb it with no oxygen or was that
1: no um, so my first shoot eight times on mount everest uh were all while guiding on supplemental oxygen mm -hmm. again imagine an everest expedition cost sixty five thousand dollars, you know on average back in those years and no one was paying for that for me yeah.
0: Right. and
1: my guiding uh, salary certainly wasn't sustaining that. So I was invited to go as a guide before mm-hmm. I had ever climbed it myself. And that's kind of how the industry used to work, especially because so you usually get invited as a guide, but you wouldn't get paid your first year or two. So the company right. was getting free guides. An I worked out well for the company and then the guide was getting experience apprenticeship. Exactly. Um, and so that's how I went for those first years and So by the time I tried without supplemental oxygen on Everest, I think I had summited six times with supplemental oxygen. Mm -hmm. And all of those summits were so important to me, but I was always working. I was focused on other people. And kind of what had drawn me to Everest from the beginning was the unknown of the outcome. You, You go to the biggest mountain in the world, because it's really hard and you don't know what's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. But I had gotten to the point through those years and through genetic luck and through fitness and a lot of hard work, I knew when I went on supplemental oxygen that I could summit. Right. And so some of that magic kind of got taken away from the mountain and that's what set me on my path of wanting to try without supplemental oxygen because I had this idea that I really, or I guess I really had no idea what would happen, whether I could do it or not, and that was the whole point in going to the mountain for the f- in the first place.
0: Yeah, yeah. So before we dive into that, I kind of want to rewind for our listeners because I think it's so fascinating. The first time that I ever went to altitude was with you, and you walked me through the process, the gear I needed to bring, and you even explained to me like what a high altitude peak was considered. Is it like eighteen thousand feet and above?
1: Yeah, I mean that's where we I've noticed and through Alpenglow Glow expeditions and now having had thousands of clients on big mountains, there's a real line at about eighteen thousand feet where below that you don't really need acclimatization. Like think about a fourteen thousand foot peaks in, in the United States, in Colorado, California. You can go. Yeah. You you could pretty much go from sea level and get up it. You're gonna suffer. And yeah. we don't I don't recommend <laughs> it, but you can do it. And the vast majority of people are gonna kind of survive. If you tried to do that on an eighteen thousand foot Peak. The vast majority of people would not be successful. So that's where I kind of consider the line of like high altitude. Right. It's also scientifically eighteen thousand feet is where there's half the actual oxygen by density that there is at sea level. So it's kind of a meaningful number. At summit of Mount Everest is thirty percent of what there is at sea level. Wow. But eighteen thousand feet, half.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes sense, and it also makes sense that like my first experience was with you and Alpenglow Expeditions in Ecuador. Yeah. Which guess what, guys? That means equator in Spanish. Um, <laughs> <It> <laughs> <anyway. does? laughs> yeah, that dawned on me when I went there. Um, but anyways, we went there, and, and can you explain the difference of a high-altitude peak closer to the equator versus one that's further away?
1: Sure. So one of the neat things about uh, altitude and um, our atmosphere is it actually bulges in different ways based on the globe. So at the equator, there's actually a thicker atmosphere, and this is Adrian being very much not a scientist here, so feel free to tell me how wrong I am about this. But <laughs> I'll t- the atmosphere is thicker at the, at, at the equator than it is at the poles. So that means you actually have a higher density. The, the molecules are crushed closer together, so with the, each breath you get more oxygen on a 20,000-foot peak in Ecuador than on a 20,000-foot peak in, say, Alaska. Mm-hmm. So it is slightly easier. Um, Still hard, still high. Lots of people try to equate what it, the difference is, but right. it actually really de- depends on weather as well. Low pressure systems, less mm-hmm. density. That's high pressure systems, higher density. So it can change by hundreds of feet based on the day and yeah. the weather. Wow, um, I never realized But that. Ecuador is this, and Ecuador really is this just incredible place for first high altitude experiences. One reason is that's slightly, you know, greater atmosphere but i think a bigger reason is the access to the peaks the 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 attitudes of the local guides and and groups and support support workers that we work with it it's just so easy you can go literally from like an amazing dinner in in an amazing city and in three hours, you can be on a 20,000 foot peak going for the summit, mm-hmm. if you wanted to be. There's not many places in the world you can do that. So there's great access in Ecuador. You can stay in nice mountain huts all the way up at 15 or 16,000 feet. So instead of having to carry huge backpacks with tents and stoves and things, you can really focus on learning about altitude climbing and the other stuff can come later the expedition stuff
0: right yeah if anyone's interested in getting to high altitude peaks go to ecuador yeah. with <laughs> alpha expeditions that's how i got my start not that i've taken it super far but it was an amazing experience and it really did it was like this great intro into climbing
1: yeah I mean, I think there's no better place in the world to learn high altitude climbing skills. It's the foundation of Alpenglow's whole program because I went there as a 17-year-old. Because from 21, age 21 to 25, that's where I cut my teeth as a guide. I would go and live, like I said, for three months at a time, and just have groups coming from the United States, and I just a group after group after group. It was kind of like for a lot of guides in the U.S., they kind of Cut their teeth on Mount Rainier. Right. I cut mine on Cotopaxi in Ecuador. So it's so important to me. I mean, the country's so important to me that that's where me and Emily got married yeah. because the two of us have done so many trips there and had so many adventures. There. It's
0: such a cool country, too. Like, it quickly became my favorite country uh, to visit. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, okay, so rewinding a little bit, like, when did you move to Tahoe?
1: Yeah, so I um, so I finished school all day myself. I finished college in nineteen ninety seven on the East Coast in Washington D.C. and immediately moved to Telluride, Colorado. Like I skiing was still my passion, even though I couldn't figure out how to, a way to make a living out of it. So moved to a ski town. That's where I was going to be. I eventually moved from there to Aspen. I was living in Aspen, guiding a lot and trying to start my own company and a variety of things. Like Aspen is so close to my. Hard, like I think it's an incredible combination of like town that feels like a city because of its culture and food and coffee and people and things like that, with actually incredible mountain playing. I love the mountains in southern Colorado and around Aspen, and then definitely Telluride. But I was also guiding a lot there, mm-hmm. and I was finding myself—there were a few things I was finding it hard to afford how to live in Aspen on, on my yep. own two feet. <laughs> Um, and I was also finding it increasingly stressful to guide and play in the mountains of Aspen on a daily basis because there's snowpack. So, specifically talking about winter, not summer, but there's snowpack I found to be so challenging mm-hmm. um, that every day in the mountains, no matter how experienced you are, really felt like you had to be at the very top of your game. And what I was finding was I was going out into these really big mountains around the world to guide and climb and ski um, and needing to be at the very top of my game. And when I came home, I still wanted to be playing in the mountains, but I maybe didn't want to be at that same level every day, all day, all season, all year, year after year. I found the same thing because I tried Cheminis. I was like, well, maybe I'll just live in Cheminis. It's the best mountain access on the planet, hands down. And I went and spent you know four winter seasons and two summer seasons there. And uh, again, I just felt like I could never let down my guard. I always had to be at such a high level. So during that time, through family friends and a, a partner, I was starting to spend more and more time in Tahoe in the Sierra. And I was noticing like the community's amazing. The playing is fantastic. Our terrain, our rock terrain is as good as anywhere on the planet. Our ski terrain is is good. You know, maybe world-class closer down the Eastern Sierra and more like playful here in Tahoe. I but think
0: it's world-class, but yeah, I agree. <laughs> no, I totally agree with what you're saying. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's world-class, right? Yeah. I want to be realistic as yeah, well, that yeah. it is different than, let's say, Chamonix. For sure. Um, and but I found myself like so happy and excited and connected here and every time I would come back, I was like relaxed and playing and meeting new people and it was just really clicking. So in 2008, my partner and I, my partner at the time and I came out and spent like one winter and we loved it. In 2009, I, I moved here mm-hmm. and um, at the time my guide company Glow Expeditions wasn't doing any US based guiding. We were, only internationally guiding on high altitude peaks. That was mm-hmm. my focus. Um, so it wasn't difficult to like pick up and move the business. It was like, oh, instead of my PO box and my laptop being in Aspen, now it's in, in uh, Lake Tahoe.
0: Right, at which point, how many employees did you have?
1: None. None, it was you. <laughs> yeah, so I founded the company in 2004. From 2004 to 2009, it was just me. Um, I would occasionally hire guides to assist me on a trip, but from 2004 to 2009, I also ran every single trip myself, Wow! which was like incredible. And it was exactly in the style that I wanted it to be in, but I was also probably living in a tent eight plus months a year oh my and like gosh. doing most of my sales and client care on a satellite phone no from a tent, kidding. which yeah. was, it was never going gr- to, it was never going to be more than it was because like, I just couldn't give more. Yeah. And so one of my very lucky breaks from a business perspective is when I moved here, uh, and I was rock climbing quite a bit with Kip Gar, who was starting to become a mountain guide. And Kip introduced me to Emily Turner because Kip was basically like, you need help. And I was like, I don't know. I'm not ready. No one does it like I do it. He's like, you need help. and I was like, I don't know. And he's like, just go have coffee with this friend of mine, Emily. Yeah. And, uh, I went and had coffee at I think at like I think it's called Dark Ho- Dark Horse Roasting now, but it used to be this little like book bookshop yes, slash coffee one. place. Yeah. And had coffee and like 40 minutes into having coffee, I was like, anything you need, please let's work together. Like Emily Turner is obviously one of your closest friends as well, just an amazing human. And yes. she was the first employee, first team member I had in Alpenglow and it allowed me to start uh You know just sharing the load a little bit
0: yeah i didn't know that for reference emily turner is one of our closest friends and i always say she could be a professional athlete at any sport had she like gone down that path yeah world's strongest (laughs) fingers most graceful (laughs) climber and skier um amazing individual but i didn't realize she was your first employee that's really cool
1: yep absolutely and one of the really fun things like obviously emily's gone on to do so many different things since then but now kind of full circle, she now manages my uh, Everest base camp when we still go to Mount Everest. And her partner is one of my best mountain guides in the Himalaya. And so like, we're still doing stuff together making Alpenglow better all these years later.
0: So cool. So you're going to Everest at this point and yeah. you're, you are guiding on Everest. And um, at which point did you meet Emily?
1: <laughs> yeah, so I started guiding Mount Everest and- 2008, and that was in partnership with a European high altitude company called Himalayan Experience. And this was like another of those mentors for me, this old, crusty, jaded, unbelievably talented mountain guide named Russell Bryce, again sort of took me under his wing in the big mountains. So I had been guiding countless peaks up to 24,000 feet high, but I hadn't been above that yet. And so he was the one that kind of like partnered with Alpen Glow Expeditions I had cl- American clients who wanted to go to 8000 meter peaks but I knew I wasn't r- ready to run those trips alone mm-hmm. I think those mountains deserve and require so much respect and uh so we partnered i first worked for russell and then we started partnering our companies and i started growing in the himalaya through that partnership so i went to everest in 2008 2009 2010 2011 they were amazing i got to summit lots and climb with incredible Sherpa, and rope fix on the mountain and do all these different things it's also when i started skiing eight thousand meter peaks Mm -hmm. um, because since i wasn't running the whole trips i could kind of focus on my own projects as well Um, so i started trying to ski these big mountains uh that was a long answer to in 2012 uh russell and i had this big base camp on the south side of mount everest and russell was friends with conrad Anker, who ran the north face team was captain of the north face team at the time and conrad was taking this team in collaboration with the mayo clinic and a scientific research project where they were comparing blood and blood results in lots of different pieces of information about climbers with experience at, at altitude and without experience at altitude oh, fascinating. so they had people like Chris Erickson and Hillary Nelson and Conrad Anker on the team. But then they had Sam Elias and Emily Harrington, two North face sport climbers who had never been above 14,000 feet on the team. And they were all going to climb Everest and doing all this blood work and different testing as they went. And so uh, Conrad being friends with Russell and I asked if he could set up his campsite next to ours and base camp. We ended up having our camps right next to each other. And uh, that's, where I met Emily we actually I did see Emily in base camp but Emily was like super grumpy I think she was sick and was like (laughs) why am I not like climbing like 514 right now all we do is like walk in the snow yeah Uh, I don't think she was terribly impressed by Mount Everest at least to begin with uh (laughs) But uh, at 21,000 feet on Everest, kind of in the middle of the season, uh, one of Emily's teammates, Corey Richards, who went on to become one of my best climbing partners, but Corey uh, got sick and, and we thought needed rescued. My team being one of the best resourced teams mm-hmm. came to help. Uh, it turned out Corey was doing better by the time we got there. And so Conrad was like, let's go have a coffee. And so we all sat around and had coffee. And that's when I first met Em at 21,000 feet and was like instantly like, um, kind of uh like pretty blown away just by who she was and definitely smitten yes but we we're also at twenty one thousand feet Man, showered <laughs> in like three weeks <laughs> totally. so it was like a pretty weird place to to meet your future life partner um but it kind of worked out we like did that rescue that wasn't a rescue and then a few days later got to hang out in base camp we actually threw this big party um people do have parties in base camp we got to hang out at that party and then my team actually decided the mountain was too dangerous that year in 2012 mm-hmm. for commercial guiding so we pulled our entire team off the mountain and went home and i was like huh wonder if i'll ever see that girl emily again um she stayed on the mountain with Conrad and team they ended up summiting that season like the risk tolerance of like a professional athlete team Mm -hmm. is rightfully different than the risk tolerance of a commercial guiding team of non-professional athletes Mm -hmm. i I think a lot about risk and risk tolerance and things like that in the mountains and i think that was a really interesting example that we had but so emily stayed summited, had an amazing experience i left um, and two months later we decided to meet up in california and go on a little road trip rock climbing uh so we'd kind of been in my world of Everest. Like I was very comfortable and she was very uncomfortable. And the next time we hung out, like, you know, she was very comfortable and I was very uncomfortable. <laughs> like I thought I was a good rock climber and then I was like, Oh wait, like I'm a good like guide rock climber. Like, yeah. like five eleven and below, like I'll do all day, every day in any style and then all of a sudden there's like a whole nother world that I'd never even played in.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, it was <laughs>
1: The best.
0: It's a bit of a mountain. It's a bit of a mountain partner fairy tale. Totally. And
1: as it turned out, like, I think we both had so much to learn about each other's side of the sport and both, you know, have our moments when we're good teachers. And like, it's just been this incredible growth for me and I hope for her as well. Through through our partnership, it's yeah. it's been incredible because we both consider ourselves professional climbers, but we're really on the complete opposite ends of the spectrum of the sport, yeah. from like gymnastic, gym, and sport climbing, and my side being like walking up really tall snowy hills, not being able to breathe. Yeah. Um, and we each learn to play in each other's ends of the spectrum. And then we meet in the middle, I think, in really cool ways, like For the sure. Kyrgyzstan trip we did, or even playing on El Cap, like big wall style climbing has kind of been, even though it's definitely Emily's strength, not mine, but it's kind of like this middle ground that utilizes all of our skill sets.
0: Yeah. I feel similarly with my relationship to her and with you. Like when we've done stuff together, it's like there's, we all have our strengths, but I mean, I'd say for the most part, y'all make me level up (laughs) way more. I don't know. I
1: remember being on Ecuador, in Ecuador that first trip and I'm like, I'm not skiing this. And you're like, I'm putting my skis on. And then you just like ripped a line down like horrible ice and crust and all the rest. So it's the same thing. We're all hopefully inspiring each other and supporting each other to like push in ways where we, can and feel safe and learn. And, yeah,
0: yep. Yeah. and as you mentioned earlier, there's a symbiosis with mentorship. We're all gaining something from each other. 100%. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about the difference of the South Side and the North Side of Everest? Is the South Side where the Khumbu Icefall is?
1: Yeah, so I can get super soapboxy if we want. It's kind of something I think a lot about. But so Mount Everest, yes, yeah, sits on the border of Nepal and Tibet or China. Tibet's managed run. I'm not going to get into the politics of it, but yeah, fair. sort of part of china now um which has negatives very significant negatives and also positives but so we have the tibet side and the nepal side Everest sits right in the middle uh it's traditionally been climbed by one route from each side uh the north side route from tibet and then the south side route from nepal and when i started going to everest i started on the south side so from 2008 to 2000 14 I was on the south side and that's where six of my summits came from and I loved the south side and um, Had so many formative memories there including meeting Emily, but it also had these issues Um, The biggest ones being the kumbu icefall which you mentioned where Mm -hmm. there's just been so many accidents over my years there I've almost died twice in the icefall. I've been through it 38 times over my seasons there and twice came very close to getting killed and what I what I found was I got I came close to getting killed in ways that I couldn't control. Mm-hmm. Purely random avalanche serac risk. So very, very large chunks of glacier or ice towering a six to eight thousand feet above you, the break at a relatively random cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I justified for a long time going through the icefall because it was Mount Everest and right. because not that many people die. Um, but what I found was, as well as having close calls myself, and then doing too many body recoveries through my years. They are like we all hear about 2014 and 2015, these big accidents that killed 19 Sherpa in 2014 and 23 Sherpa in 2015. But the truth is, in 2009 two Sherpa were killed. In 2011, three Sherpa were killed. Mm-hmm. And there were multiple co- close calls around those. And I, because of my position with this team, with Russell Bryce, we were doing a lot of the body recoveries and a lot of the rescues. And so I was seeing that and um, it, it started to become really difficult as I broke off from Russell and started running trips for my own company and started kind of doing the math. That like, let's say I want my Everest c- career to be 15 years long my company's going to run trips for 15 years. I hope we run trips for 40 (laughs) years, but let's say 15 years. And an average trip, we bring 15 to 20 Sherpa to the mountain and they do six trips each through the ice fall. You start doing the math and looking at the data and there is no way I couldn't have Sherpa fatalities in my time on Mount Everest. And like, we talk so much about worker safety in the united states and yet it seemed like we would go to that country and then just turn that off and accept that the clients aren't accepting it they're like they only have to go through the icefall one or two times and right. they take risk i don't want to say they don't take risk but they're fully like agencies of their own selves they get to choose why it's worth it is it worth it and they go through it one or two times our sherpa year after year after year of being very well paid and getting to give incredible opportunities to their families, but the cost of that is having to go through the ice fall over and over and over again. And it just didn't feel fair that like my, as an expedition leader, I couldn't say, let's do this, this and this to make it safer.
0: Interrupting this episode to talk about Peak Skis, one of our new supporters of Care Less Do More. Peak is a newer company based in Bozeman, Montana and founded by Bodie Miller. Bodhi wasn't just the winningest male ski racer in North American history, he was a ski designer who contributed to the invention of modern sidecut and a ton of other innovations that skiers now benefit from all across the board. Bodhi won a lot because in large part he understands skis and ski design. Peak exists to drive innovation and think carefully about gear. This year I've been running the 98s quite a bit of the season and I've been loving how they initiate a turn at speed and at a slower pace they're incredibly smooth especially in the apex of the turn and by smooth I mean they don't chatter they just feel really solid underfoot I think y'all will really appreciate these skis and I'm going to be jumping on the 110s moving forward as it snowed here in Tahoe and I can't wait to report
1: back this is a very long answer and I just I feel so strongly about this. So like one more story, like one time going through the icefall with six clients, we had one of these big icefall falls and the only thing I could do was unclip from the fixed rope that's protecting us from falling in crevasses below us. Tell all my clients to unclip because you had like 15 to 20 seconds before this thing fell all the way down the mountain. Say run and then go and run. And it turns out we all got behind blocks big enough and we all lived and we just got massive powder clouded and things like that. And one person lost a backpack, but everyone lived. It was like, I looked back at it and it was like, that's not mountain guiding. That's not like mitigating risk. That's luck. Yeah. And, um, So that's a long story for why I became uncomfortable with managing and running trips on the south side. It's not to say I can't understand why an individual climber would choose to still go to that side. Mm -hmm. I went to that side lots and accepted the risk myself. But as an expedition leader, I just couldn't make the math work to make Mm -hmm. it feel like I, I, I could be proud of the business I was running. That was a long answer for why I decided to move uh, my operation, Alpenglow Glow Expeditions, to the north side to Tibet. There are plenty of challenges in Tibet as well. It's much more expensive. The weather's w- worse. The climbing's harder. The Chinese government can be incredibly difficult to work with and to run trips and to be able to know that I can run trips and things like that. Um, and there's cultural challenges with the Tibetan people and their relationship with the Chinese. But I made a decision that if I was going to be part of Everest, and I think there's a lot of pluses to Mount Everest, that I would only be willing to run it on the north side. And for for reference, there hasn't been a Sherpa fatality um, on the north side due to like icefall, rockfall, crevasses, avalanches, anything like that in over 15 years. Oh, wow. That's Um, a significant difference. It's a very significant difference. There have still been a couple of Sherpa fatalities, but they've been what I would consider mountain guiding mistakes, things like running out of supplemental oxygen or getting caught in a storm. Mm-hmm. And those are things where I can use my experience and not say I'll never have an accident, but I can accept that there are risks still, but there are risks that I want to be able to manage and mitigate to the, the best level possible. So I've been on running trips on the north side since 2015. And um, I think it's a little known kind of side, as we see in the mainstream media, a lot of the problems on Everest, overcrowding, inexperience, human waste, trash, that's the vast majority of those challenges are on the south side. And those challenges are because the Nepali government has not yet found ways to effectively manage their mountain. Mm -hmm. The Chinese takes a much stricter approach. And so. We don't have overcrowding. They only allow eight companies to run on the on the Chinese side. All of us are highly experienced. We don't take inexperienced climbers to that side. They have rangers on the mountain, just like on Denali, to ensure there's no trash, human waste, things like that. So, you know, that's my kind of sales pitch. Like there is a way to climb Mount Everest still and be proud of it. Mm -hmm. And. If ever we lose that, like, I, I don't want to run trips I'm not proud of that. I, you know, yeah. I feel like there's something going on in mountaineering now, especially on the south side of Everest, like, where you might almost come home feeling a little bit dirty from your trip, like, uh-huh. sheepish about what you did or didn't do as a client, as an expedition leader, as a guide, and that makes me really sad. So all I to say, I think Everest is as a pretty unique crossroads, and I'm just trying to use my platform and my voice and my guiding company to, to show that we can still ethically guide this mountain and have incredibly powerful experiences. Um, but we need to take responsibility for it.
0: Right. So just for comparison, there's eight teams allowed on the Tibet side yeah. versus is it unlimited? It's on the unlimited south
1: side? on the south side. Wow. So there's probably 35 to 40 companies now on the, on the south side. And... Um, unfortunately some of those companies are not maintaining standards with trash and experience and things like that Mm -hmm. and taking just dozens and dozens of climbers um so huge teams not managing these different things and we're seeing a lot more accidents because of it a lot more trash Um, and especially a lot more kind of like worker issues workers are getting more frostbite more injuries things like that trying to trying to help these inexperienced climbers getting to the top instead of like alpenglow's founding mission has always been to create competent teammates Mm -hmm. out of our clients so that doesn't mean they have to be professionals it doesn't mean they have to go and climb denali on their own but they have to take build skills and learn decision making and go through failures and hard situations so that when the shit hits the fan which it does on these big mountains they can be competent teammates to their guides to their sherpa, uh, and that's kind of like the foundational belief of what we do
0: which makes so much logical sense when you think about it you know but it is <laughs> really nice interesting like i've heard <laughs> that people are learning how to put crampons on for the first time yeah on everest and that doesn't sit right with me at all
1: and it doesn't with me either it's it's hard because i don't want to be elitist, right? And I wanna find ways to create opportunities for people to do these things. And so there is an argument that the lower price trips that are being brought in that are allowing dramatic inexperience allow more people to come to the mountain. And there is something to that, but it's also, it's a dangerous, dangerous place um, and ecologically incredibly sensitive place. And so I think we do need standards while also trying to find ways to make it increase access. Yeah. Um, And that's a hard puzzle. And I'm not saying I have all the answers, uh, but I do think we've seen this on other mountains around the world. Um, Even Denali back in the day, the tallest mountain in the United States used to have a lot of issues with human waste and accidents until the. Federal government, the National Park Service, decided to take management of the mountain seriously because it was getting more and more popular. And they now mandate there's only seven companies that can work on the mountain and they have to meet certain standards of their guides and their insurance. And they, if they have rescues year after year, there's a problem. Um, and they placed rangers in every camp to mm-hmm. ensure that rules are actually being followed. And it's, I think it's difficult to hear that we need kind of like policing around rules but the hard thing about the big mountains is like they they do break people yeah and so when we feel like we might be on the edge of dying or getting frostbite or losing a teammate it becomes easy to forget about the rules the standards yeah and that's what's happening on mount everest i don't think anyone's like going into a mount everest trip suddenly as a client being like i'm gonna leave 300 pounds of shit on the mountain and not take my tent tent down right of course they want to do the right thing but then possibly because of their level of inexperience or their company's lack of infrastructure around them because they paid a budget price when when the world gets hard and you think you might lose 10 fingers or your partner might die you're gonna leave your tent for sure yeah yeah. a week later it's gonna be gone or covered up until the next season and so these are real like issues, but they're, they're hard issues. Um, but we need to address them.
0: I think on a much smaller scale, like even just entering into the backcountry for your first time, like it's my personal belief that you should get educated before stepping foot into the backcountry. But it's really hard when you're out in the mountains and you see people that like clearly don't have that experience. Like I've taken it to like really thoughtful um, intentional conversation with those people to try to make it a welcoming environment to like increase that accessibility and not like shame people.
1: 100. percent
0: But like it's hard in my mind. I, I it's hard to come up with what the right words are to say and how to like I don't want to tell them to go home.
1: Right. <laughs> but
0: you know like but it's this interesting dance between yeah what's right and and it is totally coming from a place of wanting to keep them and others in the backcountry safe. safe.
1: Yep. And I mean, you're right, it is. The same issues or challenges are here. And, and uh, like, I think, yeah, you know, one thing I never want to do is to kind of like close the gates to more people going to the mountains. Like my entire life, so not Apple Globe now, but talking about me, has been trying to inspire people to go be in the mountains or experience the mountains in whatever way they can through storytelling, through podcasts, through slideshows, through movies, if it's not going themselves because i think mountains and mountain experiences are good for community and the world and people i just do and so i want to encourage people so the last thing i want to then do is be like oh now there's too many people whether it's on everest or in tahoe let's close the doors no we need to find ways to increase access and encourage people to come and also to have these foundational basis of skills to stay as safe as possible um and of leave no trace ethics, and these things that to, to some of us living here in Tahoe are probably just so obvious, but they're not obvious worldwide of things we need to do in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, I think here in Tahoe, like we're seeing a good combination of like from fully paid guides and guide companies like Glow Expeditions offering education to uh, low cost programs, to school programs, to free like, nights at the local brew pub that do avalanche awareness like um, the program you're about to go on the road and do so many mm-hmm. like, avalanche courses with, right? Like, I think we need this combination of all different pathways to try to give, help people get that base level of education totally. and knowledge. And I think we're doing a, a better job year after year here in the U.S. and in Tahoe We're at the very beginning of that process in a lot of the developing countries that I work in. And so that's also something I hope for. I think it's really easy for mass media and for even the outdoor industry to just pile on and just like shit on the industry, whatever Mm -hmm. that is. And like, I do think it's important to realize like, people are trying and like we need to all work together to find ways to keep these experiences sacred and not just be like, Everest is done, Mountaineering's done. Tahoe's done. That's stupid. It's like, let's figure out how we can take the things we love, even as they get busier and more popular, and keep essence
0: yeah yeah that's really well put and I've loved having these like in-depth conversations with you about our local community and local politics I feel like you stretch my mind generally (laughs) and like a lot of times we get really passionate about what we're talking about and then like in the end I'm like I I learned so much it's so cool to like kind of banter back and forth about it and it's problem-solving too yeah and I think an important step always in the right direction is to have those conversations as difficult as they might be at times
1: and try hard to listen right like even when it's hard or i i find myself in this all the time like i like debate like i drive emily crazy sometimes because i love debate and like so it's really easy to just be in there and be like i've got an answer for that i've got an answer for that um but like for me it's trying to like remember to like really listen and like my some of my favorite nights are when I leave a conversation or a dinner here with friends and then like me and Em talk for two hours more like trying to go through what we heard and how it feels and what what does it mean and um I love that
0: yeah I do too <laughs> and so you're guiding on the north side now and at what point did you start to introduce the use of the tent?
1: Yeah. So hypoxia. Well, and one funny thing I should mention for the people really in the Everest world, like uh, I'm guiding on the north side, except that uh, China has been closed to tourism since 2019. Right. So I actually haven't been on Mount Everest for three years, 2020, 21 and 22. And it has been really challenging not to be there Mm -hmm. I miss it so much I miss my team I miss the challenge of it I miss the singular focus I also miss like uh, like I I'm not sure I love the direction the industry has been going the last three years on the Nepali side Mm -hmm. which has remained open and like I want to be back in the fray um and so every year we, my core team has sat down and talked about whether we should go back to the South side just to stay a part of the conversation right. and, to, and to run a trip. Like our Sherpa have struggled without that financial support right. and all these different things. And it's been really hard not to go back, but I absolutely feel it's the right decision for me and our company. But so just say, I, I guide on the North side, but I haven't been there for for years and hopefully, Alpenglow Expeditions will be able to go back this spring with the loosening of COVID restrictions we're seeing in China today. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd Good knock on wood again, yeah. except <laughs> that cat will go crazy. Uh, so, so, so that's Everest, um, and then yeah. So, hypoxico pre-acclimatization, pre-acclimatizing intense at home, is a part of the system that uh, Alpenglow Expeditions created, called we call it rapid ascent. And uh, we, I started playing with the tents in 2011, and I had seen runners using them, and I actually saw another climber, a mountain guy named Kenton Cool, pretty cool name. Mm-hmm. He's summited Everest 11 times, he's from, uh, he's from the UK. And uh, he was doing. He was trying to make, the. this is how this industry works, he was trying to make the first cell phone call from the summit of Mount Everest for <laughs> Samsung. No Samsung way. had a new phone that was gonna be able to work. They were building a cell, cell tower and this whole thing. They were gonna make the first cell call from the summit. But because of the way the prototypes were coming out and things like that, like he couldn't come for the whole season. He had to wait and do all this media stuff in the UK and then fly in. And so he used a hypoxico tent for the first time. He's the first one I know of who used it in the mountains in I think 2010. Okay. And so I saw that and heard all about it and he was like, it was amazing. Like I felt amazing and I think he was in the country for like 32 days total. And I was at that time running two and a half month long trips. so 70 to 75 day long trips. That's 75 days living in a tent. 75 days away from my business, away from my girlfriend, away from my community, like getting weak as a rock climber, all Mm -hmm. those things. And so I was very interested. I'm like, huh, that's interesting. I knew Ultra Runners were using them and things like that. And um, here in the United States to get ready for races like Leadville. So in 2011, I played with it myself and had the same experience. I just knew i was acclimatized even though there wasn't a lot of science behind it then in 2012 i decided to try it with an entire group of clients who were willing and we were actually going to a mountain called makalu the fifth tallest mountain in the world um, i decided that Manaslu, the eighth tallest mountain in the world was too dangerous for my teams after running it for four years so i switched to makalu but makalu is this mountain where the trek is so difficult that you essentially almost have to, I'll say have to, even though it's not true, fly to 18,000 feet and just start your trip oh, at 18,000 wow. yeah. feet or spend two weeks in the leeches in the jungle to get there. And so I wanted to fly my whole group of clients to that altitude. And so I persuaded them to try Hypoxico like no one had ever heard of this thing. Right. We had six clients, my doctor, Monica Piris, uh, three mountain guides. We flew to eighteen thousand feet. The helicopters like made us sign like liability forms because they had never dropped a team off that high before. They're like they're all gonna die, right? Um, <laughs> and we got at, out at like eighteen thousand seven hundred feet, and like we all stayed. Everyone had slightly different levels of acclimatization. It wasn't perfect but no one needed to be flown back out. And that to me showed like that shouldn't be possible with right. seven of nine people coming from sea level and landing above 18,000 feet like we were talking about and beginning their expedition. So that was my first like taste like this works, but we have a lot to learn about like how to make it work for everyone or a majority of people every time. And so we started building out this rapid ascent system. and. By 2014 or 15, I didn't run any more trips above 23,000 feet that didn't include pre-acclimatization. And now we're even running trips all the way down to like Ecuador. It's now possible to go on a long weekend, Thursday to Sunday and climb a 20,000 foot peak in Ecuador. And uh, so I am completely sold. On this system of pre-acclimatization.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, I've used it. We used it on that yeah. weekend trip to That's Ecuador. That's right, a weekend trip. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it certainly does feel it works. Yeah, um, was part of the use of that tent preparing you to go on your oxygen oxid- on your. Um, Ascent of Everest without oxygen yeah I mean it really
1: it started first of all with like selfishness back in like 2011 2012 that was in that period we were talking about where I was still living like seven to eight months a year on big mountains around the world and if I could find any way to spend more time at home instead of in the mountains that would make my life better personally and so selfishly I started thinking about hypoxico and pre acclimatization like that could I shorten trips by 30 percent or even 50 percent using these tents and I talked to my clients many of whom happened to uh, lead busy successful lives wh- whatever their definition of that is mm-hmm. they love to do a lot of things in general yeah and so the idea of shortening time not taking away the essential experience but like, a two and a half month on Everest, a two and a half month trip to Everest, which I did six times or whatever it was before I used Rapid Ascent. Like a month and a half of that is drinking whiskey and playing cards. And I, you know, I love drinking whiskey, (laughs) but I don't need to do it for six weeks. Like, so cutting out some parts of the trip like that, I thought would make for better trips for everybody, including myself. So that's where it started. By the time I was going to try no oxygen trips in 2015, um of course I wanted to try pre-acclimatization with that, but once again everyone told me it wouldn't work. So my first try without supplemental oxygen, I went back to a traditional trip. Corey Richards, my partner, and I went to we didn't pre-acclimatize. We went to Nepal. We trekked for three weeks, twenty-one days, and we went back to Kathmandu. Then we flew to Tibet, And then we spent almost two months on the mountain doing endless trips up and down the old school way. Wow. And I failed. I'm not saying I failed because I didn't use pre-acclimatization, but I failed that first year. I turned around less than 250 feet below the summit after a two and a half month long expedition. It was like this unbelievably heartbreaking thing. And I learned a lot that season. And I think my failure was primarily due to my ego and trying to keep up with Corey, as it turned out, he was faster than me, above 8,000 meters. And so instead of doing exactly what I knew my body needed and doing exactly what I would have told my client to do, Mm -hmm. I did all the wrong things. But I kept up with my partner, Corey Richards, and then completely exploded 200 feet below the summit. Um, But also in there, I think, is how much weight I lost over a a two-and-a-half-month-long trip at high altitude. You can't eat the same number of calories and protein and all these things, and I lost a lot of muscle mass, I think, Emotionally, my brain like gets pretty fried on those two plus month long trips, and by the time I got to my summer push, all I actually wanted was to go home. So I think there were a lot of factors. Yeah. Um. So when I went back in 2016, uh, and actually I'm off by one year. 2016 was my failure on Mount Everest. 2017, I succeeded without oxygen. When I went back in 2017, I went back kind of under my own terms. I, you know, I hope. Like, kind of gotten that ego side of my brain a little bit and checked that I, I didn't need to be the fastest one on the mountain. I didn't need to be the strongest one. I just needed to do my thing. I used pre acclimatization. Um, I worked with a nutritionist. I did a lot. I worked with Uphill Athlete and mm-hmm. Scott Johnston. Um, and I went back, climbed it, summited without supplemental oxygen. Interestingly, the trip door to door USA to USA was only 39 days long. Wow. So essentially the same pre-acclimatization system that we do with clients today that's amazing. half the length of a traditional trip
0: and i really enjoyed following you on the first trip via snapchat (laughs) that was like such this interesting media experiment which yeah was ultimately very successful
1: it was so funny this wild moment in time right that like Instagram was obviously a huge thing. Snapchat was coming up. Everyone was... It's kind of like probably TikTok was a year or two ago, right? Right. Like everyone's trying to figure out what it is, how it works, how to do it. And Corey and I, again, like we were... We loved media. We were trying to find ways to tell the story, to share Mount Everest with more people. Because like that's... I, I just think... Maybe it's not true, but it somehow feels slightly less selfish. Some of the pursuits I have, if I can share the story and it seems like people take things from that story. And I think that's through uh, podcasts, slideshows, and it's through social media. Yeah. And so we, I think, it was funny. I was in Europe that winter, the winter before Everest, training and skiing with Emily. And it was in Europe that I started hearing about Snapchat. I can't remember who told me about it first. It wasn't Emily, but someone told me and Emily. Emily's younger than me, so she was probably on Snapchat before (laughs) I was. But we heard about Snapchat, and then we were in Europe for two and a half months, and it was so funny. We were on Instagram, and all the pro skiers we followed on Instagram made Europe look like it was the best season ever. Everything was perfect, everyone was skiing pow. And we were there, and we're like, Kind of sucks this season, and we're struggling so hard. And why is everyone getting it and we're not getting it? And we started following skiers, young skiers, on Snapchat, and we started noticing that on Snapchat, like, it looked like the shitty season it was, and on Instagram, it looked perfect. And we're like, that's what Snapchat's for. And so Corey and I decided to do Everest, no filter. We were going to show like the real side of Everest, all the BS that goes behind the beautiful sunrise photo that you actually post on Instagram and it just caught on. We ended up with like millions of daily views and on all the mainstream media who were trying to figure out how to use Snapchat and what it was and uh, it it blew up and it was a a rad experience to have literally like, we had to hire people to go through the daily comments and questions and then try to choose what to answer each day and it was one of my favorite parts of the project looking back at it even though i don't use snapchat anymore yeah and even though it was like i don't think people realize like how hard it was like To post a single 15-second Snapchat took between 20 and 30 minutes to upload on a satellite link. So you're like with your freezing cold fingers on your phone trying to keep enough solar power at 25,000 feet where your head's exploding and you're trying not to vomit and you're trying to melt enough snow for water for the next day. And we'd we'd take turns. One person would cook for the night and one person would do like four hours of uploading Snapchats. Oh my Um, gosh. And then the next day we'd switch. And it was so much work, but it was totally giving us more than it was taking through the feedback from people. Interesting.
0: Just that like kind of community aspect of people interacting with you where you probably wouldn't have that much interaction on a mountain like that typically. Totally. Yeah. And it just kept you going. People were intrigued.
1: I mean, like we had like classrooms of eighth graders in Florida following us, not because we set up a school program, just because some teacher found it and thought it was a great way to teach science or ecology or whatever subject they were teaching like and so we had so many classrooms following us and then we'd have these stories where people were like fighting medically through some like horrible thing that is way harder than Mount Everest but being like every day waking up and seeing you suffer and wake up smiling like that's helping me like there were so many stories like that that yeah like it's so funny I I bag on social media as much as the next person, I'm sure, and especially now I feel like we're in a moment where it's just less fun, for me at least, Mm -hmm. but like I've seen also the intensely positive side of it.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. There's moments where I hate it and there's moments (laughs) where you're like, this is so cool to be connected to so many people in this beautiful way. And So I remember when we were down in Ecuador, I got to sit down with Carla.
1: can Carla you, Perez. Yeah,
0: Carla Perez, this incredible mountain climber, and she kind of went through a description of climbing Everest with no O's. Yeah, and I just want to hear it from you too. Like, how does that <laughs> physically and mentally feel?
1: Yeah, I mean it's um, it's painful. <laughs> like, Carla's uh, probably way better at me at describing it. And you know, interestingly, Carla succeeded the year I failed. So I had this really interesting year. The the year I failed and turned around 200 feet below the summit, uh, three other people summited without supplemental oxygen. And all of them were friends of mine and peers of mine. So Corey Richards, Carla Perez, and uh, Melissa Annan. <laughs> and looking back on it, I'm really glad for that. But at the time, it was brutally hard. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't use, we're all almost encouraged to use excuses when we fail, I think. Like, ah, oh, the weather sucked. The avalanche danger was too high, the, um, you know, the stars didn't align, whatever. I got stomach poisoning from the food. And all those things are true. I'm not saying they're not true, but it's often easy to, like, look at these external things and be like, that's why I didn't do this. Right. I had none of that because, because my succeeded. succeeded on the day I failed. Uh-huh. It was me. It was my failure. And, like, I had to come home and I had to live with that and I had to, like, own it. And the, the hard side was being like, oh, my God, am I going to lose all my sponsors? And no one's ever going to talk to me anymore. And Emily's not going to love me. And all these things that go through your brain when you have, like, a real failure mm-hmm. that's on you. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the hard side. The good side was, like... I think that 100% enabled me to succeed the next year because I could not hide from my own failures and having to actually figure out what didn't work and then put the work in to change it. Um, so that, I don't even know how I got on that. Call a press. Yeah. <laughs> so Call is just like a better climber than me and probably better at describing Everest than me. Um, but yeah, for me, like I might have said this already, like all those climbs with supplemental oxygen on Everest were like very powerful and I'm so proud of them. But I got to the point where I knew the outcome would be I'd summit Yeah, and my whole Thing we didn't really talk about it, but like I started reading Everest books when I was like twelve and thirteen, and it was like the unknown and mystery of Everest that captured me. And it took me until my thirties to figure out how to get there. And then I got there and the unknowns weren't quite as strong as I expected them to be. Okay, yeah. And so the reason I decided to try without supplemental oxygen was wanting the outcome to truly be unknown. And it was. I mean, I failed. I found the line that first year. I came really close to getting myself killed that first year because I pushed past a line that I probably shouldn't have. Um, And it took a lot of like teammate support even though no one was with me individually but i had monica this expedition doctor on the radio just yelling at me about my slurring of my words and she was watching my gps track and seeing that at the pace i was going i couldn't summit and get down alive. there was no way and then, you know i had sherpa who were going to give up their own summit bids to come down and turn me around if i didn't turn around so i did have a lot of help in making that decision but i still pushed it too far before I turned around and it was very hard to get back down off the mountain, Um, back to camp four where I had oxygen and could be okay. So none of that is an answer to your question. Like what it is, it's like most of the trip is just like any other Everest trip where you're progressively going up the mountain, building camps, um, getting to an altitude where your body can't survive spending a little time there, which is where the suffering comes in, and then dropping lower on the mountain to where your body can survive, so it can do things like build new red blood cells, which give you the ability to go pr- a little bit higher on the mountain and mm-hmm. survive, and then you can do it over and over and over again. Um, But that process is exhausting, of course, because you're climbing the mountain a lot, but it's also exhausting because your body's being asked to do so much in terms of like breaking down protein, breaking down muscle, and then building red blood cells. And you're
0: progressively getting weaker, right?
1: So you're getting weaker the entire trip. I went from 146 pounds to 132 pounds, so lost about 10% of my body weight. And almost all of that is muscle because your body so badly needs protein, Um, That's what your body, your stomach can't digest. So your body takes protein from other places. Mm -hmm. So like what that feels like is you're just, you're really tired all the time, but you don't sleep well because of high altitude, headaches, nauseousness, food doesn't taste good. And so it's just this like low level suffering where you still need to wake up each day and do the work. Mm -hmm. It's probably a lot like a lot of people's big audacious projects, right? That's why I think, mountains can be a good kind of like learning ground for real life Mm -hmm. Um, because I think that's how a lot of life feels for a lot of people a lot of the time right like the the goal you're working towards whether it's finishing school or being able to buy a house or finding the love of your life it might just seem impossibly out there and it doesn't really make sense what the path is to there but you still get to wake up in the morning and do what the job is, whether the job right. is like digging out the tents for the day or climbing 2000 feet and dropping off a load and coming back down. I think that's it's that process though that felt like the hardest part of Everest to me is just like having to still grind even though this seemed really impossible.
0: Yeah yeah and is it physically like it's physically painful it's
1: physically absolutely painful because your body doesn't have the oxygen it needs so to your brain that means swelling within your brain that causes like really crushing headaches so you're trying to work through bad headaches and that's
0: actually your brain swelling
1: yeah that's the brain swelling inside the skull and the skull doesn't swell swell so basically um the capillaries in your brain that are feeding all this blood they start leaking at high altitude because of pressure differentials and other reasons that fluid leaks out of the blood stream out of the blood capillaries goes into the interstitial space inside the skull and then has nowhere else to go because the skull can't expand so it's just like a head injury that you get in skiing or a car accident wow. or anything else and your brain is just getting pushed against the side of the skull by this fluid that's in there right and headaches are like an early symptom obviously like confusion unconsciousness coma death but the late symptoms and so but the problem with no oxygen different than with oxygen with oxygen you don't really need to play at that line if you're getting crushing serious headaches and confusion you should be going down but for no oxygen in order to create the physiological changes you need, the new red blood cells, you have to keep pushing that edge. It's the only way to force your body to do what it needs to do. And so everyone who's climbing without oxygen is on that edge of too much altitude sickness. So it's really painful and its I think it's dangerous. We are now at Alpenglow guiding clients who are trying to climb the big mountains without oxygen. And I think we're uniquely positioned because Kala guides with us and Mm -hmm. Topo, who's climbed without oxygen, guides with us and I guide with us. And Monica has seen so many of us as our expedition doctor. And so we're uniquely positioned to take clients who are trying without supplemental oxygen, but it's a pretty scary edge to be playing on with someone.
0: Yeah, Um, no doubt.
1: Just like the cutting edge of any... uh, extreme sport do we still call our sports extreme sports like you know whether it's skiing or free diving or whatever it is on the edge it's it's pretty out there you're choosing to take real risk yeah and so climbing without everest has that pain it has that unknown it has that risk that you have to choose to actually accept and know why it's worth it um and then there's like the actual reality of summit day. So all the way up to like twenty-seven thousand feet, I still moved. Kind of, I still moved kind of like a human being up to like eight thousand three hundred meters or something like that. Above that, like, you know, looking back at the videos, I'm taking one step and breathing twenty to forty times. So breathing for one to two minutes, and then taking another step. Wow. And so like people don't get like the last the last few hundred feet that I turned around on that last 200 vertical feet like you could throw a baseball 200 vertical mm-hmm. feet that was going to take me another seven hours or something ridiculous at my pace that year and the next year like I was much better but it was still like let's say it was three hours for that last 200 feet and the mind fuck of that I don't know are we allowed to swear on yeah the podcast? totally like the mind fuck of nothing changing because you only took six steps in the last 20 minutes yeah so like The visual picture, usually on the skin track, even if I'm tired, I'm like, I'm getting there, I'm doing this, (laughs) like I'm moving, I'm following Michelle, whatever it is, like this, nothing changes. And so finding that, I don't know, psychological way to still keep going upwards instead of downwards, I think is pretty remarkable or like... I don't know exactly what it is. I do know for me. It is remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. But I do know for me, the reason I was able to do it was one, this like base of many, many years of experience and building up to that level of kind of like suffering and unknown. But it was also about the team I built around me. And I think that's really important to acknowledge because people have climbed Mount Everest without oxygen, without support. Mm -hmm. So they're just up there and they find that mental strength in themselves and they, they manage the risk themselves like reinhold messner the first person to climb everest without supplemental oxygen after i failed in 2016 and cat really loves this part of the <laughs> yeah. story after i failed in 2016 and came really close to the edge um in 2017 one of the decisions i made was to surround myself with a team mm-hmm. so in 2017 like physically
0: with you on with the mountain,
1: with me actually on the mountain and i was lucky to do that like my ego like had a little support doing that because they were my Film team. Yeah. Yeah. Got my mountain guides, you know, but the reality is my film team were mountain guides. Yeah. And they were on supplemental oxygen. So I had Topo Esteban Mena on supplemental oxygen, who summited Mount Everest five times, including once without oxygen, at my side. And on the other side of me, I had um this Sherpa Pauldin, who I've been climbing with for 20 years and all of my biggest ascents. He summited Everest 18 times, and he was on supplemental oxygen and with his prayer beads praying the whole time and so like i had a team and so like at the same point probably 200 feet from the summit, maybe a little less 150 feet from the summit i got like really scared about how slow i was going and how bad i felt Mm -hmm. and like that might have been the point that i would have turned around but i had topo and paul in there who were like no like you're still talking you're not slurring your words like you were last year on the radio you're Your color looks okay. You're not stumbling. Whatever it was, they were like, you got this. Yeah. And they stayed right there. And Corey Richards, who tried for a second year to try to summit two years in a row without supplemental oxygen in this year that I succeeded, he failed without supplemental oxygen, turned down to go back down the mountain without supplemental oxygen, ran into another Alpenglow team who had an extra bottle of oxygen. He put it on and came back up. And he was like a superhero, like this apparition came out that i couldn't figure out in my adult brain like how he could possibly be there because he had told me he was going down yeah and then he was like running circles around me and like fist bumping and hip pumping he's like we're <laughs> doing this and like so i had a lot of support and and i got to stand on top
0: that's a pretty beautiful experience yeah. to have your friends with you though i would imagine that's like a bit more enriching than like you're you make it alone and you're like okay yeah cool I'm here now
1: (laughs) yeah I mean certainly I feel really lucky to have them that the funny thing is like we're talking a lot like about what it's actually like I I was actually like I now know what it's like is you're actually blacked out almost on the edge for a lot of it um and so it's just like being like very very drunk that's what high altitude climbing is like and so um I you know so uh, one of the funny stories from my summit day is, you know, a day or and a half later, I was back down in base camp and Killian Jernay had been climbing the same season as me, this ultra runner and incredible climber who also summited Everest without supplemental oxygen, not once, but twice uh, in the same season. Wow. Um, but, so I was back down at base camp hanging out and someone came to my town and was like, that's so cool, you and Killian got to see each other like near the, on the summit ridge. Like, what a powerful moment, I was like, Killian wasn't there. Like, what do you mean Killian wasn't there? He's like, (laughs) Killian wasn't there on my day. He went like the day before or whatever, like got in a full fight. And so Topo pulled out his camera and like scrolled to hour 27 of my summit day because my summit push was like 43 hours long round trip. 43 hours. And he scrolled through to hour 27 and there's me hugging Killian. (laughs) And I would have bet my house that I hadn't seen Killian that day. So yes, it's important to have your friends up there and it's more meaningful, but I'm not sure how much I actually remember. I mean, it is. That's pretty
0: fascinating. You're out there. And you're in the moment you're in that blackout state or is it like you descend and then you don't remember? No, I think
1: you're in that moment. But Mm -hmm. I think maybe you almost need to be because it is so like unbelievably boring and slow. Right. so maybe the blackout helps you (laughs) push through the pain um yeah it and and that truly is like i think that varies for different people although everyone who's summoned everest without supplemental oxygen has had a real like mind-altering experience Mm -hmm. or everyone i've met um but the wild thing is like a couple years later i got to climb k2 the second tallest mountain in the world without supplemental oxygen it's only 500 vertical feet lower which okay. feels the same, right? When you're talking about 29,000 yeah. feet or 28,500 feet, it feels the same. But it turns out for me, my line where I truly break is somewhere in between those two altitudes. Interesting. Because on K2, I was on the summit of K2 on the radio making logistics plans for how many Sherpa and horses we need for our exit three days later. And like I filmed a two minute selfie where I thanked my sponsors. On Everest, I didn't do any of that. If someone (laughs) hadn't been there, like taking a photo, I wouldn't even have a photo. Like, And so it really was just those last couple of hundred feet that for me were above my physiological ability. Mm -hmm. And I do think that level varies a little bit for different people. So of course I'm genetically capable at altitude um, and and pretty good at it. But there are definitely people better than me at it, like Killian, like Corey Richards. Um, And then there are definitely people like I know, uh, you know, a few, a handful of people who have climbed 13 of the 14 8,000 meter peaks without oxygen, but they haven't done, succeeded on Everest, wow. and it's because their line is somewhere between right. K2 and Everest, but maybe a little lower than mine. So they haven't found a way to get through it. And yeah, like, you know, if Everest was 300 feet higher or 500 feet higher, I'm not sure anyone would physiologically be able right. to do it. Right,
0: it's right at that threshold. It's right there. So you don't actually remember standing on top.
1: I mean, since I've seen so many photos yeah, and right. videos and told the story so many times in slideshows, I think I remember. I can picture it. <laughs> that is fascinating to me. It's hard to know though. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. And so what, like, what drives you to go out there into those mountains and take on that risk and accept the possibilities of that risk happening?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is that I've always been interested in that kind of like, unknown line right like i just loved i'm a voracious reader and like my teenage years were just filled with reading books about explorers whether it's space or underwater or or the world back in those days and um and and mountaineering just really captured me in that way that there was that unknown to it so i think that's a big part of it the second thing is though that i found uh, and again, I I don't want to say mountaineering is like so special because I think there are lots of ways to have these experiences. But that's where I found this world where I could be singularly focused on one goal with a team. And I just love that. Like mm-hmm. I just love that Like everyone is there pushing towards this unknown outcome, putting everything they have in, figuring out how to support each other, how to get the most out of themselves, figuring out what strengths and weaknesses on a team are to actually accomplish something larger than would otherwise be possible. Um, I I think mountains are like the ultimate human laboratory, for me at least. And I love the idea that there's like, there's this very personal selfish goal with every single person who goes to the mountains, I think. And Everest is very clear. It's like, I wanna stand on the summit. I wanna stand on the summit. And yet there's this total team goal that hopefully trumps the individual goal. The team goal being, I want everyone to go home alive. And those two goals are often like not aligned. They conflict with each other. And like what humans have to go through to figure out how to balance those two things, what they're willing to sacrifice, like how selfish or selfless they are. I I just, love it It keeps bringing me back every Mm -hmm. time and my with oxygen climbs do the exact same thing and so that's why like i think sometimes there's a little bit of like like with oxygen isn't as cool or isn't as meaningful no those people with oxygen are going through exactly what i went through without supplemental oxygen like everyone's battling those demons and those balancing those things and like my goal on a with oxygen team on these big mountains is that everyone is working to their line so That line's gonna be different for a Sherpa than it is for a client. I don't think there's any issue with that. Like a client might carry a 20 pound pack and a Sherpa might carry a 60 pound pack and a Sherpa might go up the mountain five times and a client only one time. Mm -hmm. As long as each person is finding that line where they're close to breaking and having to like struggle. Because I think, I mean, otherwise why, like, there's a work side to it but i also think there's a passion to what our sherpa are doing or what our mountain guides are doing It has to be yeah um and so like i think we all should be working to that line and and that's what i love about it
0: yeah i think like when you discover that line it's often beyond what you thought you were capable of
1: Al- always
0: yeah. i would say and that's yeah. part of the beauty of it part of the draw is pushing yourself and absolutely a lot of self-growth and self-discovery comes from that
1: yeah 100 percent. and you know i think that's very true and i think we can do that though we don't have to go to mount everest to do that right to For push sure. that line I've never been. To, yeah. to, to surpass that line and so even in mountaineering we don't have to be on everest and like that's what I think sometimes is getting missed in the industry today is like a desire, just like you said, someone who's never won crampons, thinks they want to go to Mount Everest to go play with that line and surpass that line. It's like, no, 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 like, Stepping stones. Go, go play with that line on cotopaxi in Ecuador yeah. or even on Mount Shasta. Let's start on Mount Shasta and then go to Ecuador and then go to Argentina and like all, you're gonna consistently surpass your line learn things build grow and maybe that path will end with everest maybe it won't but you'll have gone and had amazing experiences and explored that unknown mm-hmm. um, so
0: and then diving into that like a little bit deeper like what is your because I, I know for myself personally I've been struggling with, with this recently as like and I haven't been put back into the mountains in a situation where you are towing with that line yet but after losing friends, like, I always come to this place of, of pretty much confusion.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think confusion is a part of it, right? And, like, I, I think that's a very natural emotion to have when we have these, like, conflicted experiences, like, both of us have had probably many times and very recently losing Hillary, like, where the mountains give me so much. Like having this conversation, I'm like, oh my God, I love the mountains so much, and they've given me so much, and then they like, quote unquote, take away so much, right? Like losing some of our closest friends, losing, I've lost coworkers, I've lost Sherpa on Mount Everest with me. Um, They are like heartbreaking, brutal experiences, especially watching like what happens to the people loved that person who's gone and um so I can't even remember what the question was I'm just like in it now like you know um
0: yeah I, I think it's it is a conversation I mean it's it's like the struggle to rediscover what like my own personal boundaries are and I don't think I'll know that until I'm in that immersive experience of, of yeah. being present in the mountains and but all and like what my risk tolerance levels are I know for myself as my career has grown that risk tolerance has has gone down cuz I've seen a line that I don't think I'm personally prepared to cross with 100%. risk tolerance and so I've backpedaled from that a little bit and I'm still in this phase of like figuring that out and every new adventure kind of bring something new where you're tested in a different way. And, and for myself, I think building the confidence to speak out and feeling empowered in the mountains is a big part of that, of knowing my limits and knowing when I can speak up 100. and say no or continue on. But um, yeah, I just, I just do find like this state of confusion really of like, what am I comfortable with?
1: Yeah, I think it is really important what you just said, like to be speaking about those things and that confusion and how your risk tolerance does change and I think has to change and for me like I think it will never be static that's where I've kind of come to like I don't have a line I can point to it's right. like at one point in my season or career or year my line will be like I'm not sure I want to ski anything but Rubicon in <laughs> which is like 32 degree treed slope right and then There'll be another time where like this spring I went to Makalu, the fifth tallest mountain in the world and was willing to like try really hard again because the fire was there and it mm-hmm. felt true and like, and conditions had aligned and I'd spent a decade focusing on the mountain and knew it really well and like it was right and I was willing to take quite a bit more risk. and so. Like, I think that's probably my biggest learning is like knowing that I don't have, like the line isn't the same, it isn't static and it's gonna change all the time based on the people and all these different things. And
0: the scenario you're in, totally. And the
1: scenario, but I do definitely think like it's something 15, 20 years ago as I was coming up in this sport or 25 years ago, in my 20s, I was not seeing any conversations around it being okay to back off just because your risk tolerance wasn't up to the day. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm sure it's happening. I'm sure there were mentors out there. But like that's not what I was seeing and feeling in the media and the sport. And looking back at the risks that I took, especially in like alpine climbing, so kind of like mixed climbing in the six thousand meter ranges in South America and things like that. And the hard ice climbing I did in the United States, like like I just thought there was no other choice. If you're gonna be a mountaineer, you had to take massively outsized risks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I don't think that has to be true. I think a mountaineer or an alpinist or a skier can be really successful and proud and uh, and relevant in our industry with a pretty mellow risk tolerance. And yet I still think there's like, I am so glad there are the warriors out there who have a different risk tolerance and push our sports to new places and do it with eyes open. Mm-hmm. Like I I I am a supporter of both and I think I'm very very squarely in the middle and you know drifting overall downwards through my career I would say in my risk tolerance and yet feeling these fires that build that totally. allow me to go way harder and feel good about it again.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important to note too that like these people that are pushing the boundaries and that are the warriors like you just stated are super intelligent individuals and they're very well aware of the risks that are there and 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 you know to be fair like I've tasted that for sure many yeah. times over and I loved it. Yep. And it, and it, it was something <laughs> that fueled me and it brought me to a different place in my mind and in my life and I don't think I would be the same person without those experiences so I 100%. completely understand that desire and yeah and and to be fair like I don't know if I still have that or if I don't like we'll right. see when we're in the mountains in that situation yeah it's a it's an interesting thing
1: 100% I, I feel the same way I do know like I do seem the past few years to have ended up almost on a like two-year cadence of fire and like so like Everest without oxygen was 2017 and then like 2018 I got invited on this like big rowdy expedition was like no way and then by 2019 the fire was back and I went to K2 without oxygen and I was like I am done and then like um I felt like uh you know I was kind of building back up and then COVID happened and it was like right. oh well now I'm not doing anything and then luckily this spring I was able to go back and everything aligned um yep. I just think like communication is so important and hopefully having uh, a group and community that can share in that that was a big thing for me like ending up in in Tahoe I think is that there were so many people here pushing and managing and thinking about risk in different ways as skiers as mountain bikers as climbers as patrollers you Mm -hmm. know and like there's a very I feel like open conversation about risk here Um, and it's something that Emily and I like really stress in our relationship is like kind of like debating and discussing risk why an expedition feels worthwhile or a goal like you know really really having to honestly work through those things yeah as we build up to them And yeah, I I just think that's very important. I don't think any of us should be judging each other's risk tolerances and or, but I hope like we're all talking about them. with people we love and who love us and we respect because it takes so much respect to have those conversations.
0: Yeah, big time. I really appreciate your perspective there. And I think I totally agree with it, Totally.
1: Too. And we've talked a lot about yeah. it, I think. Yeah. Risk and the sport and things like that. Yeah. And, and we've it's lost friends together.
0: Yeah, for sure. Many times over. I mean, it's something like going back to you talking about walking through the Khumbu Icefall and how you just did the math. And you saw the mm-hmm. outcome of that math. And you weren't willing to accept that risk. And similarly, I mean, years ago, I was taking a class from Zahan. Um, Bill Mm Amorier and I love his ability to teach he's been a sensei of mine in the mountains and he kind of broke down like the more time we spend in the mountains as professional athletes as people that are pushing the limits like it is a numbers game and he just went through his partners in the mountains and and how many people he's lost and in my head I was doing the same math and And to be quite honest, I started crying (laughs) mid-presentation because I realized that there's math to it. There's a probability that something could happen to each and every one of us that is playing in the mountains, really at whatever level that is. But primarily like, yes, the professionals, the people that are out there every day, you're exposing yourselves. Accidents happen all the time. It's not fair to say that an accident on Everest is any different than an accident in the Utah backcountry or something like that. Um, it's a part of being in the mountains.
1: Yeah. And I think it all, I mean, I'm, I, I certainly guess it always will be, and I hope it always will be. Like, this is this strange balance that, balance that, let's say, with my parents, like, I spent a lot of time discussing, especially when, like, my mom got sick a few years ago, and I was still thinking about doing things like going to Everest, and my mom, like, couldn't understand how I could, like, put that potentially on my dad to lose, his life partner my mom and to lose me and like so we talked so much around like risk and why it's worth it and like i am just absolutely sure that there is an importance to taking risk to having activities with risk each of us at our own level um and in our own way but like what like for me i think ultra runs and things like that are really cool they and mentally and physically they have almost the exact same makeup as climbing a big mountain the difference is big mountain adds risk Mm -hmm. and what i've seen is the bonds that i've made the teams and the way they work together and the overall power of the experiences i have and this is not to take anything away from other sport or competition i think it's rad but for me risk changes those things in a really powerful positive way and so like I, as a mountain guide, want to mitigate risk, but I don't want to ever see risk somehow taken out of the equation. Mm-hmm. It's, it's intrinsic to, to what I love about mountain sports.
0: Yeah, well, your partners become your line of safety. And mm-hmm. I think that ultimately just inherently puts that relationship on a different level. 100% that I always am like, man, the friendships you get from the mountains are so deep. And so there's so much layers Mm -hmm. to it. It's beautiful. No, it's it's true.
1: And I often say it to like friends I'll meet locally or like friends of Emily's that I'll like have a lot of dinners with or things like that. Like a lot of great fun experiences. But I'm like, let's go climbing. Let's go play in the mountains. For me, yeah, there's a depth to that uh, relationship and friendship that I, I cherish.
0: I remember, like, one knee surgery that I had being like, oh, I wonder if, like, Emily and Adrian or Jimmo will come visit. Like, what the heck are we – I've never really just chilled out (laughs) with them. Like, all of our friendships are so based in the mountains. And then everyone came over and hung out. And I was like, Oh this is pretty normal, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah, We're capable. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. But there is just this – it is a part of you. You have this desire to be out there in the mountains, and it's something that – fuels me and it is the most beautiful and magical thing in my life other than the relationships that i have with people my parents and my friends yeah yeah
1: it's done we're lucky we found it it's really cool (laughs) that you
0: had those conversations with your parents too about taking that risk and mitigating it and the comfort level you have with it i don't think i've had that open of a conversation with my parents
1: yeah yeah no it and i don't think it came easily i mean my parents are very British, right? And the the, the kind of like stereotype the Brits kind of keep it buttoned up and don't talk about the hard stuff and aren't very emotional was absolutely true with my family growing up. Uh-huh. Um, so this these conversations came, I think, when my family were at a really vulnerable time with my mom sick and um, uh, like I- I'm glad we had that time despite like the situation being so brutal and um and it changed my relationship with my dad Mm -hmm. beyond that so i think that's a lucky thing we had like he like in a good way in a good way like we he now understands and appreciates i think more of what i do and why i do it and is just more able to ask interesting questions and have real conversations before an expedition or after an expedition because of that greater openness he has to why i do it and how i do it and risk talking yeah about risk. And that's that, really beautiful and, and vice versa right like i i think those conversations and things probably did change some of my risk tolerance and understanding like even though i'd lost friends and seen that pain with other people's families like to actually be in it and talking about it with the people i love most like the selfishness of what we do and mm-hmm. like you know i'm I'm pretty sure if I go in the mountains, I'm just gone. But it is. It's it's our families and the people who love us most who carry that burden for so many years, right?
0: Right. But I would imagine having had that conversation with you, if something were to happen, they're better prepared and understanding of why? the why.
1: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm just sure it still wouldn't be an easy road, right? But I I think their understanding is greater now than it was before that that time.
0: Yeah. And talking about that, you are a soon-to-be father. Yeah, <laughs> any I day am. now.
1: Any like maybe right now. I'm not meant oh to gosh. have my phone on mute, right? Because <laughs> like, what if Emily's calling me right now? Like, I'm
0: going into labor. No way, we would. But know. for this podcast. <laughs> yeah she's Um, full term like it could happen at any moment yeah
1: so she's been full term for a while now like my guess was november 11th i was just sure 11 11 22 like i'm not a cosmic woo -woo guy type of person but i'm like that's a cool date he's gonna come on that day he didn't um it's now the 16th 16th. m's official due date is the 18th the day after tomorrow oh wow which is also opening day of palisades so we're like uh (laughs) ski or baby ski or baby um (laughs) I'm so excited. It's been wild to watch Emily to be a part of her pregnancy um, and i I've been more or less ready, I think to be a dad for a bit now, feeling like a a certain level of like contentedness in the mountains and like maybe like a little extra energy that I wanted to put to something like ha- raising a family um, so I was pretty excited when em felt like she was there too and happened a little faster than we expected but here we are <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes i am so excited and you, you both have not told anyone the name
1: that's right the name is a uh, secret just because it seemed fun to, to keep it although it's driven some people just crazy like at two in the morning i'll get like a string of texts from like Emily's dad with like a bunch of names guessing. Oh like it's like, I can't sleep. I just need to know. <laughs> like, Tim, you got gonna find out. It's gonna be okay. Um Yeah. I've yeah. done the same thing. I've texted her <laughs> numerous
0: names. Has anyone guessed it? And you just haven't told them. No one
1: has guessed it. The funny thing is, I shouldn't tell you this, you'll go hunt it down. One person knows because we were filming this summer intensely in, in <laughs> yeah. Wyoming, and Colette McInerney was with us for a bunch of the summer. And I mean, you know how filming is. You just, first of all, Colette's like a great friend and one of Emily's best friends, but also you just, like, you do get so comfortable. You forget the camera's there. That's the point. Yeah. And uh, so I was just like hanging out with them on the side of the lake and like said the name, like just talking to them. And she's like, what are you doing? <laughs> So, yes, one person knows the name, but we do
0: know it's a little boy,
1: little boy. Yeah, um, unless you know they screwed up, also, yeah, you know, you never know, but uh, little boy, do this week, yeah, that's exciting, a wild ride. I know, like, me and em, like go through these waves, right, of like feeling like we're super ready and we got this, and then it just feels like completely impossible, and um like the next moment it's like whoa what changed it's just all like mental and psychological right it's wild Mm -hmm. um i think we have a lot to learn but that's kind of the whole point of it and um it's gonna be fun
0: yeah yeah, it will be for sure. I can't wait.
1: Emily and Adrian
0: happen to be You're, basically my neighbors. And you so. live right down the street. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Like
1: lots yeah. of hanging out with Auntie Michelle. <laughs>
0: it's going to be amazing. So many of my friends, are. we're just at that age.
1: I do feel, and, and this is probably true everywhere. I'm like, is it special in Tahoe? But it's tra- probably true everywhere. But like, I do feel there's just this community vibe around raising a child that like, people I've known for years but maybe don't adventure that much with or haven't connected. I've just felt like so much generosity out of so many people and just really tiny ways. But like Mm -hmm. I'm going into this like knowing like no matter what we needed the day after tomorrow or a month from now, like we've got people
0: for sure to
1: support us and a larger network than maybe I thought we had. And it's it's felt really special. It's a cool thing.
0: That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and by the time this podcast out, I'm pretty sure the baby will be born.
1: That's so fun. And yeah. you, you just put in the notes the name. Totally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Turns out the name was. <laughs> I yeah. can give everyone a hint. So Emily actually chose the name, but I had like one kind of like request. Like I um, I love my initials. I'm okay. A.B. Yep. Adrian Ballinger. And um, uh, so I was like, I want him to be A.B., she was like cool. I got this. Yes. So there's a little hint to the listening audience. Yes. I think yes. it's going to be an A B unless we change in the moment.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I've gotten so many hints that have led me through some hilarious internet searches, actually, for the names.
1: I know, because will be like, it's the 7,232nd most popular name in the U.S. Yeah. And you're like, 7,232. like, she totally. was actually just making that up. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not a popular name.
0: <laughs> and once the baby comes, do you think you'll have, do you think like, I mean, right now, we talked a lot about risk tolerance, but do you think that will change once you physically have the baby?
1: I, I guess I can only answer I don't know because right. so many people asked for and unasked for opinions have told me how much is going to change so I, I want to be open with like I, I don't know I, yeah. haven't, I haven't been through it um, what I do know is like I actually have, I feel like my my whole career has been around recognizing managing and mitigating risk And I already would say I'm pretty like I'm like on the risk spectrum of our friends, like I'm on a pretty conservative side of that scale, I would say already. Um, And so, like, I think this is just going to be one more factor in how I make those day to day decisions. I don't think it's going to be the ending factor or the only factor. Mm -hmm. And so. So, yeah, but I, I guess we'll see. Um, And then the other side of that, I think, is like, I know I'm not done. Yeah. Like, I hope I will always have, like, a lifetime of adventures I'd love to do. So, like, I don't think the list will ever go away. But, like, like I still feel it inside of me that, like, I want to go and try hard things that do entail risk with people I love. Mm -hmm. And I hope that me wanting to do that provide some level of value to my son, like recognizing that his, at some point recognizing that his parents, like he was incredibly important and the most important maybe, but, but there are also like, we're also complete human beings and yeah. these lives in the mountains are part of that. And um, I hope I can strike that balance. Uh, but I, I know there are things I wanna do in the mountains still.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah i agree um i think you're an incredibly talented person at dealing with logistics and <laughs> setting up plans and all of these Love things logistics. so it's gonna be really fun <laughs> seeing you as a dad and just getting into it and yeah i feel like you're gonna be pretty darn
1: dialed we'll see i'll, I'll i may be dialed i may also be super annoying like i am <laughs> like a details person on the edge of ocd and M might say like well into ocd so like we'll see how that works with raising a kid. Like I I can only imagine he's going to be like his mom and like a total happy at the most junk showy moments. Like, yeah. yeah. And like (laughs) just embraces the chaos. Uh, and so, you know, I am, I imagine he might well be like that. And I'll be like, planning things dad you know because yeah. I'll be like at 8.15 we're doing this and at eight <laughs> we'll take the second bite of the wildflower cookie and then we're going to ski this run. am like I've got my like Friday opening day of Palisades all planned out no you know kidding. <laughs>
0: yeah I still don't have my boots <laughs> fitted I gotta figure that I out I went and got my
1: ski pass <laughs> today I mounted some skis yeah, like yeah. I'm, a, I'm a nerd I like planning I
0: love that I love that I think I like the idea of planning but I'm not there yet <laughs> <laughs> totally. yeah sometimes i nail it
1: yeah
0: <laughs> like well we are taking up some time and i really appreciate you giving wow, me your time this has
1: been so much fun yeah, yeah there's
0: so many things been... that i could continue talking about and asking <laughs> questions because i find you to be very fascinating but i really nice. appreciate your time and for the listeners, if you come to Tahoe in the summertime, you have to try Glow Expeditions Tahoe Via. It is one of the most fun experiences, and it's a great intro to rock climbing. And for me, who I love rock climbing so much, I took my mom up there. I go up there by myself. Uh, it's so the fun. Best. <laughs> Check out Glow Expeditions, especially if you're interested in getting into high altitude climbing, as well as you guys have an amazing backcountry access through the gates at Palisades. That's right. Which is, I think, a really awesome way to have your first backcountry experience.
1: 100%. Yeah, we're so lucky to have this relationship with Palisades and to be able to take people up the lifts and out the gates or the one day future gates. Right now they're just a boundary. Um, and, and, and also, th- You know we have quite a few trailhead programs avalanche education programs uh the the winter program in tahoe is something i dreamt of for so so many years and we were finally able to pull together the partnerships and the permits and the guide team and my business partner logan talbot and all his relationships and it's like i get so fired up about it i love it so much so yeah come visit us in the winter come visit us in the summer and um I just really enjoyed that conversation.
0: Thank you. Yeah, Clothes have been an incredible resource for me to learn and grow, whether that's a ropes safety course in climbing or an avalanche course or any kind of medical courses like y'all offer a lot. Absolutely. There's a lot of resources. And just for the listeners, if you're going to take an avalanche course, take some sort of a first aid course as well to couple with that.
1: 100%. Get your
0: education. It's super <laughs> important. And,
1: and education is cool and fun. It <laughs> is. It's so
0: fun to learn. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Abs- absolutely. We yeah. are
0: on a lifetime apprenticeship <laughs> of the mountains. Yeah. For sure. Never stop learning. Well, thank you so much, Adrian, for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you as well. This was so much fun.
0: Heck yeah. You.